Hello, folks, and welcome to this special bonus episode of the Owl Vision Justice Podcast from Local Marsh Learning. This is where we explore STEM diversity and the intersections of social justice, ecological justice, and STEM. I'm Roger Nathaniel Ashtia, the Executive Director of Open Wise Learning. Danielle is working at the hospital today, so she won't join me for this bonus episode. In this bonus, we talk more with Dr. Condra Sears from Episode 2. If you haven't listened to that episode yet, you should definitely check it out. There are many great things in there. But to give you a quick rundown, Dr. Sears has a PhD in molecular microbiology, and she's a vaccine researcher. Because we couldn't fit our entire conversation into Episode 2, in this bonus, you'll hear about how Dr. Sears discovered her passion for microbiology. She'll also explain a bit about vaccine history, how vaccines are made today, and a bit about SARS-CoV-2. This is the virus that causes the novel coronavirus disease known as COVID-19. A couple of quick notes before we start. First, Danielle and I talked to Dr. Sears the week before the recent news about the coronavirus vaccine, so we don't discuss that news. However, there's still a lot of great and useful information in the discussion about coronavirus and COVID-19. Second, we're going to start the recording with the conversation already in progress. Again, listen to episode two for the other part of the conversation if you haven't already. In this part of the discussion, Dr. Sears was talking about her high school experience. Okay, let's get into it again with Dr. Sears. And I had really good science teachers. We also had like, you know, nice lab facilities. Not great, but for like a high school lab. They're actually better than the labs at our, um, the College of the Bahamas. And so I had teachers who let me do science experiments outside of class time, right? And that, I think, just like opened up this curiosity in me. And around the same time, the Human Genome Project was sort of starting to kick off. And there was all of this excitement about, you know, we're going to learn so much about the human body and humanity, and we're going to be able to cure diseases. And I was like, this is amazing. Like these you know, genes, these things that we can't see that determine who we are and how we get sick and all of this, or if we get sick, we're going to solve all of this. And I'm like, oh, I want to do genetics. That was, I think, so by the time I left high school, I was like, okay, I'm going to go and study genetics. And I I hit university. And I think my first genetics class, I was like, this is not for me. This is not interesting at all. (laughs) And I think some of it probably had more to do with the way it was taught, but it just didn't fascinate me. And I also quickly realized that I was not into the macro, like big things, like my zoology classes that I had to take, like they were interesting, but I was also like, I don't really care about giraffes and other, you know, like on that level, like that is also not interesting to me, but it was the microbiology classes where it's like, oh, this is really cool. Like these things that we can't see have had this outsized impact on humanity. When you think about, you know, like much of human history, right, much of the human experience has been dictated by our ability to survive infection, right? The, the first yeah, year of right. life in particular, the first few weeks after birth were critical, right? And you have like cultural practices built around maybe like not naming a child until they hit a certain age. The first five years are also like another um, like maybe milestone. Point. Right. Yeah. Milestone. Like, so if you, if you made it to five, you were probably going to hit adulthood and be okay. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I guess for especially like now we don't, you know, we sort of live in a time, especially if you live in nations where countries with, you know, easy access to clean water, safe food, vaccines, we don't have, I don't know anybody who I don't think who had whooping cough or, you know, smallpox or polio, right? I would have to go back. And my parents, I don't think have anybody in their cohort who had um, polio. Probably have to go back to my grandparents, they, yeah, you know, generations, yeah. Um, yeah, and so you know, diseases that would you know come in and like decimate populations or you know cause outbreaks, we we have a lot of that under control, and sort of just like understanding that and how you 
how you go about that it was just very fascinating to me but that you know these small things that we can't see and that there's so much like mystery and myth and all these things that you know humans came up with because they thought like malaria right it's called malaria because people thought malaria for bad air they thought it was something in the air that was making people sick and no it's like a, a paradise transmitted by mosquitoes right so yeah so it, they, they have controlled or so much of our lives and and even now you know i mean we're still you know I, I would never have thought that i would be living through a pandemic i think a lot of people think see those as things of the past like when we hear about you know the plague that ravaged europe or any other like major outbreak disease outbreak like that's something that happened a long time ago in a faraway place and it's like no like we're we're in the midst of one so since we're talking about the pandemic and the what we're waiting on is the vaccines and that is the work that you do if you can be very plain and basic with our audience to kind of tell us what vaccines are how they work and how are they made yeah sure so I work in a lab that is developing vaccines against non-typhoidal salmonella. And these are strains of salmonella that cause gastroenteritis, so diarrhea, nausea, abdominal pain. So they don't work specifically in COVID vaccine development, but the concept is the same, right? Vaccines are substances that cause your body to develop an immune response, right, to a particular pathogen. The And pathogen meaning a microorganism that can make you sick. Right, so bacteria, viruses, parasites, those sorts of things. And the beauty of this is that when you do encounter this pathogen, right, now because because you've been vaccinated, your body already has a response that we know will protect you from infection or at least serious infection. And so it means you don't you either don't get sick or maybe you get a mild case that you recover from more easily. There are different types of vaccines. So probably like the earliest in human history, people would be familiar with smallpox and process of immunizing people against smallpox developed in Africa and Asia, where people noticed that if you, you got like exposed to a little bit of the pustules from an infected person, you would develop a mild case, but then you would be protected for life, right? You wouldn't get a severe case and you wouldn't risk death or serious scarring. And so they would do this by either like collecting the scabs from infected persons or collecting the contents of the pustules. And in that process is called variolation, right, for variola, smallpox. The issue with that is that you're still exposing people to an infectious, highly infectious agent. And so vaccination um, and immunization, we really, over decades and now going into hundreds of years, have refined that process where we really, we expose people to substances that are not infectious or attenuated in some way so that they've been weakened in some way. So you still get that immune response, but the risk of infection is not there. So there are different types of vaccines. You can have inactivated vaccines, and those are vaccines where the pathogen, the whole pathogen has been killed in some way, either through being fixed or heat or something like that. So the common ones that are used today would be the flu vaccine is inactivated, the flu shot. Polio would be an example of an attenuated vaccine. The oral polio vaccine is one so that the virus itself is weakened. And in the case of polio, you occasionally get reversion of the vaccine strain to wild type and sometimes children will develop 
polio from it. But because it is so easy to deliver, it can be rolled out more broadly. And so you do reduce the incidence of disease, you know, within a population. And then oftentimes countries will switch to the injectable vaccine, which is inactivated with any vaccine. So there are considerations to be made in, you know, how it's delivered, how it's stored, you know, in some situations, access to clean needles or being able to store something, maintain a cold chain can be difficult, right? So those are the things we think about when we develop vaccines. You also have oral vaccines and that's the, so the lab that I work in, we, one of the main things we try to develop are bacterial vaccines so that are attenuated so the bacteria have been weakened in some way, but they can also be delivered orally. So an example of, of an oral vaccine, bacterial vaccine that's also on the market would be the one for typhoid fever, TY, TY21A, right? So you take these, I think for that, it's like three pills that you take over the course of a few days and it protects you from typhoid fever, which is endemic in some parts of the world. But it's sort of like a model for vaccine delivery because it's easy, right? You don't need any special tools or equipment. Anybody can do it. Anybody can train somebody how to do it. So there's a variety of platforms with some of the COVID vaccines, the ones that are furthest along in development. That was actually what I wanted to ask you about so that I um, were clear on what you're saying here. So there's there's injected vaccines and there are oral vaccines. And it, within both of those categories, it can be activated or attenuated. So of the, the vaccine under development right now for COVID, where do they fall or do are people trying different so modalities? They're different, definitely trying different modalities, but the earliest ones, the ones that are furthest along are mRNA vaccines. And this is there there are no currently licensed mRNA vaccines, right? So it's a new newish platform in that regard, but it's been tested for other pathogens in preclinical trials. But the reason they were furthest along is because all that was needed to make those vaccines was the genomic or the yeah, the genomic sequence for the virus. So once people started sequencing SARS-CoV-2, which is the virus that causes COVID-19, that information was available. And because so scientists knew from the MERS outbreak in I think I want to say 2012, Middle Eastern Respiratory Virus, which is also a coronavirus, and then the SARS outbreak, SARS-CoV-1 in 2003. Based on studies of those viruses, they knew that the spike protein was important you know, for infection, um, and antibodies to the spike protein were important for protection from infection, right? So once they had that sequence, scientists were able to make synthetic mRNA for this spike protein for this coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2. And, you know, whatever proprietary, so the NIH partnered with, and I'm going to, I'm drawing a blank on the, one of the companies that, that's sort of ahead in the clinical trials for this, but it's, so it's a partnership, public-private partnership, right, between NIH and this company to test this vaccine. And that's sort of like a plug for the importance of publicly funded science, because we would not have known to sort of go right for this target protein without all the years of work that have been done in labs that receive NIH funding and public funds. I think it's a, a key point that you're making that like while each virus or disease has it, is its own entity, there are some patterns that you can pull from previous work. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so you, you sort of build on that knowledge to make um, future vaccines speed up the process. So those are definitely the ones that we heard about early in the year that went, you know, to phase one to clinical trials, and they're now in phase three clinical trials. So far, you know, they seem to be safe. The reports of adverse events don't seem to be linked to the vaccines themselves. The question is, how protective will they be, right? 
And we're going to need billions of doses, right? If we're talking about vaccinating, immunizing the whole planet, and if everybody needs at least one dose for some level of protection, that's a lot of doses. So, and there are mm-hmm. other platforms that are using, so they have essentially put the spike pro- the sequence for the spike protein into another virus. So it will make that protein. So your body's exposed, but it's not because you're not giving the person actual SARS-CoV-2. You're just giving them that protein. They'll make an immune response to that protein. And that's sort of one of the approaches that was used for like the Ebola vaccine or one of the Ebola vaccines. So having another virus express the protein of interest or the target protein as a way to expose the body and generate that immune response without making somebody sick. So there are lots of different ways to go to go about it. And we don't like fully understand in general, like, why one strategy works versus another. And so a lot of early vaccines were essentially scientists would kill the pathogen, inject it in somebody, and then if they get sick, right? And so, but now we're at a stage where we can refine the process. Maybe you just give people one or two components of a pathogen and that's enough. So a good example of that would be the DTaP shot. And so instead of people getting diphtheria, tetanus, and pertussis, right? That shot is essentially the toxins for each of those bacteria. So diphtheria toxin, tetanus toxin, and then in the U.S. it's acellular pertussis toxin, right? So you get inactivated forms of those, and those are protective from disease, whereas before you would have gotten killed diphtheria, tetanus, clostridium tetani, or uh, pertussis, right? And so we've gone from... You got the most infectious parts or the parts that like incite the reaction. Yeah, so you've gone from exposing people to like hundreds or thousands of proteins to just these three proteins, right? Mm -hmm. So that's one way that the process is much more refined. And so the lab, the group that I work with also develop what are called conjugate vaccines. And these are made just from surface components of the bacteria. So one or two components as another strategy in developing salmonella vaccines, but it sort of goes back to meeting different modalities for different places, right? So in a country like the U.S., you would have access, regular access to cold chain needles and whatnot. People might be more accepting or are more accepting of injectables, right? So you could get a conjugate vaccine that is injected in places where it might be hard to, or, you know, and you also don't have the technical expertise. An oral vaccine might be more ideal for broad immunization. So those are things to think about. It's not just the science in and of itself, but you have to fit it into like how it fits into society. Mm-hmm. So each virus that is, a, is approached differently, but also the way it's disseminated into the population, it's yeah. differently depending on where you are. Yeah. Yeah. Who's your target population? Who needs this vaccine the most? And how what's the best way to get it to them? So those are things that have to be considered. Actually related to that, backing up to something you were saying earlier about there's a need for at least one vaccine for everyone on the planet. So there's a lot of discussion back and forth about immunity. As you know, the president a couple of weeks ago said thinks that he's immune. People think if they get the virus, they're immune. I've heard various things over the last six or seven months about whether or not getting the virus will make you immune and whether or not getting the vaccine will make you immune. So can you speak a little bit of that and what the current understanding is around herd immunity and what people think can be the solution to this and also why we don't want to try to get herd immunity or try try to expose people to this and why we needed the vaccine? Yeah. So this is a really interesting time to be a scientist. (laughs) That's very diplomatic. (laughs) Yeah. The amount of information and data that has come out about SARS-CoV-2 in the short space of time has been amazing and overwhelming. And initially, so, you know, different countries took different approaches and the whole idea of herd immunity. And I'll say I was shocked when I heard countries, governments propose this as an actual strategy, because up until now, like 
the only time I had used the term herd immunity was in the context of having a vaccine for a pathogen, right? In the absence of having a vaccine, essentially what you're talking about is having enough of your population get sick, right, and and survive, right? And the survivors are now protected. And because transmission is low between them, there's going to be less transmission overall, right? When we talk about herd immunity in the context of a vaccine, what we're saying is that we vaccinate this many people, that's going to reduce transmission of the pathogen among, you know, unvaccinated people too young to be vaccinated or who, you know, maybe have conditions or whatever. So if you don't have a vaccine, you're essentially talking about a lot of people becoming sick and dying as a result and you'll be thinning the herd, right? So it's, it was, it's sort of an interesting to hear people talk about it as a way to control the pathogen because you're not really controlling it. Um, yeah. And then you're just letting it, let, letting it run its course. You're just letting it run wild, which is what happened, you know, what used to happen with disease outbreak years ago, right? Like, right. I mean, now no yeah, Before modern medicine, right? In public health. Exactly. Yeah. So that's been, that's been wild. But now there have been a few reports of people having secondary infections with different strains. So it seems like there's limited protection. So there was, I think the first official or sort of credible report was about a man in, I think, Hong Kong who got sick earlier in the year, had to be hospitalized. He recovered, then he traveled to Europe and he popped up positive, like on a random screen or whatever. And when they compared the two, the strains from both infections. So that's the other thing. Like there's, we're going to, there's so much information about the different strains that are out there now. It's amazing. So they were able to compare the strain from his first infection to the second infection and realize they're different strains. Luckily for him, his second infection was mild, but he didn't have any symptoms at all. On the flip side, there was a report about a young man in the U.S. who his first infection was mild. He didn't need to be hospitalized. His second infection required hospitalization. And so there's just a lot we don't know. And again, different strains of the coronavirus. So are there differences in virulence so like how severe disease the strains involved are or you know whether or not it was a matter of dose you know maybe the amount of virus he was exposed to the second time around was a lot more and so that kind of overwhelmed his system or and even with you know initial infections like we don't know why you know or what role these things play and how sick some people get right so you know there's certain comorbidities but just understanding how much how many viral particles does somebody need to be exposed to to develop symptoms that sort of thing. So there's a whole lot that we don't know. But we do know that people who get the vaccine, they, they are generating immune responses that's, that indicate that they would be protected if they were exposed to the virus. Um, we don't know how long the protection will last, right? So for these, the, both the two cases I talked about, the first and second infections happened, you know, a few months after the second infection happened a few months after the first one. So mm-hmm. that is concerning, right? Because it means you're still vulnerable a few months later. Um, yeah. That long time at all. Right. It's right. You know, if it, if it was at least a year, that would be nice. But so there's, there's still a lot that we're learning, but the best case is to try to minimize your risk of exposure at all, you know, just not get it. So what you said actually makes me think of two questions. How many strains are being tracked right now? And any vaccine that is developed, would it be effective for all the strains or is there just not enough information right now to know that? That is a good question. I don't know how many strains. I mean, I know that there's a lot of data collection going on. So scientists are tracking that information. And I think this week, actually, there was there have been reports out of Denmark where there's been a strain circulating in minks, and that has mutated into a strain that can be transmitted from the minks back into humans, right? So this mm. virus is changing rapidly, 
you know, so again, we don't know if what's the vaccines that are being developed will be protective, but at least with the mRNA-based ones, once we do get a sense, the advantage of that system is that you can quickly make those changes in the sequences mm-hmm. and you could dev- you could produce vaccines that are maybe specific for a particular region, you know, particular strain. You can make a, a cocktail, a mix of, you know, if you find like there may be one or, or two or three particular strains circulating in a place. So it's, it's, a, it's a, at least a platform that can change quickly, right? But the, the, the short answer is sort of we don't, we don't know how much cross-protection you're going to get between strains and, or if, you know, at least getting a vaccine against one strain might give your body a better chance of more time to develop a more specific response if you get infected with a different strain. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's in the transmission of either a bacteria or virus in a new host or new person that gives it the opportunity to mutate and change with a new environment, right? So bacteria, well, pathogens are always, they're like any organism, right? You're going to get mutations and changes every time DNA is transcribed, right? So that's where those mutations can happen. I guess what determines whether or not that gives a bug the capacity to make somebody sick and be transmitted is how useful that mutation is. You know, if it's not deleterious, you know, if it doesn't kill the pathogen in and of itself, or if it, you know, if it enhances, makes it survive better in a particular environment. And so when uh, pathogens jump from one species to another, you know, they hit roadblocks, right? Because they have evolved in a particular environment. And now in this new environment, you meet up with new defenses, right? Things that you haven't seen before. And so we're exposed every day, right? We don't, we don't, there's no way for us to know how many times pathogens jump to a new species and it's just a dead end because, you know, our body's defenses are able to clear the pathogen really quickly, right? So there's no, there's no infection. We also don't know like how many times there's a jump, somebody gets sick, but it's like so severe, they die and there's no transmission, right? Because your body, because sometimes your body can, the response is too much, right? So right, overwhelms you the whole. Right. So, and that's another dead end, right? So we don't, we don't know when, how many times these things happen. But occasionally, right, we've seen it with SARS, we've seen it with MERS, and now we see it with SARS-CoV-2. These pathogens break through and they're able to spread. And then and once that initial event happens, right, it, it survives in one host, mutation is going to happen again, right? And the pathogens that survive are the ones that are better adapted to that host, and then they can be transmitted. And so it's sort of this process or cycle, right, where they become they can become better adapted to a host. So I think about my work, right, with salmonella, there's some strains of salmonella that don't infect humans. They, they can't, right? There's so, and then there's some that are human restricted. They only infect humans. So that's just like sort of a recurring theme when you think about infectious diseases that these jumps probably happen more frequently than we know, but it has to be like the right confluence of events for it to be successful. I see. Well, folks, that's the end of our bonus episode. Thanks again to Dr. Condra Sears and to my co-host, Daniela. This episode will be posted on World Children's Day, so if you're here that day, happy Children's Day. If you haven't already, subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss our next conversation when it drops. Finally, Giving Tuesday will be in a little over a week from now following the Thanksgiving holiday. If you can, we ask that you give a gift to OpenWise Learning on Giving Tuesday to support our work. Find out more by visiting our website at openwiselearning.org or follow us on Twitter at OpenWiseLearn. Until next time.